Uh, such love. I wish I could say that my topic this morning was frivolous and fluffy, but I've entitled my message, Murder Most Foul. So I, I, wanna, I was actually going to divide my message into two parts this morning, but after I'd finished writing the first part, I thought, now we have to stop for morning tea, not for lunch. Uh, and so I, I've left it to uh, Brendan to finish that off uh, because I don't know whether you know this, but Brendan will be preaching next week. <laughs> I'm glad you're excited. Brendan didn't look excited about the prospect at all. <laughs> you're not getting my notes. <laughs> what, you want help? Forget it. <laughs> it's a competition. Of course not. So before we begin, before we get into any more trouble, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that the, your word is there for us to help us understand not only you, but to come to terms with the world we live in. We thank you that it is powerful, that it is comforting, that it gives us a path to follow, which enables us to have a fulfilling and blessed life. And so we hold to that word in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Now last week we learnt that death was something that most of us in this century are unfamiliar with except for the odd funeral. Most of us live in a world of packaged foods where chickens never get slaughtered. They just appear in plastic wrap or in the oven at Coles. Actually, I should mention Woolworths as well. I don't want to seem biased about uh, my disdain of large food producers. Um, and Aldi and Saveway and... Yeah, okay. But we also learnt that to regard human beings as disposable in a disposable world is not just devaluing human life, but it's also insulting to God who created that life. And so this morning I want to talk a bit about the, t the sorts of murder, and I use that word because it's a good emotive word, murder. It means something that evokes the idea of death by foul means. And I want to talk today about the ways of killing people that our society has deemed either acceptable or at least justifiable. You think, well, hang on. We don't live in a society that justifies or finds acceptable any form of murder, do we? Well, I've found four main areas that our society, and I'm talking about societies worldwide, not just our own here in Australia, that have justifiable homicide, if you like. First one is abortion. Euthanasia, capital punishment, and war. What is it good for? <laughs> nothing. That's right. Absolutely nothing. Now, so I'm going to quickly go through all of those things and just not to, not to actually tell you what we should believe because that's, that's actually not my job. But we need to be aware of what goes on in our world and we need to be thinking 
about the consequences of not only our actions but the actions of the people around us, the actions of our society, the actions of our government and what impact that has on not only this generation but the generations who are yet to come. Now abortion, that's always a tricky one. Our Christian faith declares that a human life begins at conception and that a fetus is fully human. Modern medicine confirms that a child in the womb experiences consciousness and pain. And yet, we continue to legally kill large numbers of fetuses. In 2006, do you know what the population of Australia was? Well, I'll tell you. 20.7 million people. As of December 2013, that figure was 23.3 million people, which is an increase, if I've done my maths correctly, of 2.6 million people over eight years. Give yourselves a clap. Well done. Well done. <laughs> in the year 2011, there were enough abortions performed in Europe and the United States alone to wipe out that population increase. That's a, an astonishing figure. Now, two points I want to make here. First, it's easy for me as a male to actually make judgments about abortion because although the responsibility for pregnancy rests on two people, I'm not sure whether you're all aware of that and I'm not going to go into the details, but it does take two people. Yes, we've done, we've done this one before. But often the responsibility for abortion and the guilt and the pain is only carried by the woman. And so I don't want to make any value judgments. There could well be people here today who have gone through abortions. It is not my place to judge what happens to people. And the second thing is that God himself is not in the business of increasing people's guilt and remorse. And I want to know that if there is anyone, I want you to know, that if there's anyone here who has gone through an abortion, then you need to know that God loves you, he wants to heal you, and he forgives you. It's not about judging people, but it's actually about coming to a worldview which values life. The most frequent reason given for legalizing abortion, and I quote, was to avoid risk of injury to the physical or mental health of the mother or her existing children. That's laid down in law. But in reality, abortion occurs mainly because contraception either failed or wasn't used and that the pregnancy is inconvenient or unwanted. Rape or alleged rape is cited in fewer than 1% of all abortions. Less than 1% of abortions occur because there is a likelihood of fetal handicap and a tiny, tiny fraction of 1% occur because the mother's life is at risk. And in short, most abortions appear to be for convenience or retroactive conception. The really frightening thing about this, and, and we've got a, we're looking at this on a worldwide scale. Individual cases, we need to assess individually. But what we can see happening on a worldwide basis with the advent of greater technology is the fact that with genetic testing, you can work out the sex of your child very early in development even before you can see that thing on the ultrasound scan. You know, is it a finger? Is it? Yeah. Well before that, you can do a, a genetic test which will determine the sex of your child. And 
what they've discovered is that in countries like India, and in fact in India, that abortion has skewed the rate of birth of males and females because their culture prefers male children over female children. And there have been enough sex-selective abortions to actually change the balance of that 50-50 mix of girls and boys. In fact, they've even got a name for it. It's called gendercide. You know what the really frightening thing is? Select communities in Australia, Britain and the United States are starting to show similar trends that are statistically identifiable because they prefer male babies over... Who knows what? Male babies are... I mean, little boys are just such a pain to look after. I mean, okay, admittedly they grow up eventually, but gosh, don't understand. (laughs) Statistically speaking. And so, you know, we can see that although the heart of the people who introduced the idea that it should be legalised might have been in the right place, often the hearts of the people doing it are not. And I think whether... Whether we, we feel for the rights of the, the mother versus the rights of the child, we've got to look at how the practice is being used worldwide. And I think from these stats we can see that it's not actually being used for the good of the mother or her children, as originally stated. There's a neat little story. You may have heard this one before. But because it's an easy solution, we often forget that it has consequences. Some medical students were attending a seminar on abortion where the lecturer presented them with a case study. The father of the family has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis. They have four children already. The first is blind. The second died. The third is deaf and dumb. And the fourth has caught tuberculosis from the mother. The mother is now pregnant with her fifth child and is willing to have an abortion if that is what you suggest. What would your advice be? the students overwhelmingly voted to terminate the pregnancy. Congratulations, the lecturer responded. You have just murdered Beethoven. Sometimes we need to accept the fact that we are not fit to judge the value of human life. The other end of the scale, of course, is euthanasia. You might wonder, what is wrong with the euthanasia? I would say absolutely nothing. Sorry, that was, that was probably, probably a poor place to make that joke. The, do you know what the literal meaning of euthanasia is? Dying well. But today, we understand it as a medical term, which means to actively participate in the ending of somebody's life, and a, a medical intervention at that. Now, there are two things euthanasia is not, so we shouldn't get confused about it. Allowing patients suffering from fatal diseases to die in peace without being subjected to medical procedures that aren't going to cure them anyway so that they can die peacefully is not euthanasia. Also, the use of pain-killing drugs to control severe pain even at the risk of shortening life is just to enable somebody's last days to be as peaceful as possible is not euthanasia. Euthanasia... Uh, and the intention in those practices is to allow patients to end their days peacefully and dignified. They have their own medical issues, but they don't raise significant moral problems. 
In theory, euthanasia sounds harmless. The terminally ill decide voluntarily that enough is enough. And at the time of their choosing are given such drugs that will cause a speedy and painless death. But it's interesting, if you've ever listened to pro-euthanasia speeches, it's full of words like choice, rights and freedom. Nowhere does it ever say that the doctor is going to kill the patient. When in essence, that is exactly what is going to happen. There are all sorts of problems with euthanasia, even with the best of concerns. Who knows somebody who's either recovered from a fatal illness suddenly and, and miraculously or has been told they have a month to live and are still there five years later? I mean, that happens to a lot of people. So medical science isn't exact. And so you can make choices for people or you can encourage people to make choices which medically don't necessarily make sense. Um, they're talking about euthanasia for young people. You might think, well, you know, if they've had a, an accident or something, perhaps that's a possibility. But then comes into the equation things like organ doning, donating. Doning is a new word. <laughs> Imagine you, you've got a young person who's been in an accident and they've got healthy organs and it's, there's pressure put on the parents to actually end that person's life so that the organs can be harvested. There are other f factors at play here. There's the cost of the elderly. Do you know what one of the biggest things that drives the euthanasia of elderly people in the medical profession? It's not easing their death at all. It's the lack of hospital beds. It's a lot easier to get rid of your patients to free up beds. And, and we know that there are people in jail for having done exactly that. So it's not pie in the sky. People do that. Uh, although we'd hate to think this could happen to us, you imagine you're there on your deathbed and you're worth a lot of money. Why are your relatives pressuring you to have some drugs to make your passing easy, not only easier, but sooner? <laughs> so that they can fight over your will. Now, none of us have relatives like that, but there's a possibility there. Uh, Euthanasia sets quite worrying precedents. Uh, a guy, Dr. Leo Alexander, was a psychiatrist who worked with the Nuremberg Tribunal. Now, many of you are too young to remember the Second World War. Um, in fact, I think most of us are too young to actually remember living through it, because um, we didn't. Um, who's heard of Auschwitz? Has everybody heard... They were concentration camps where people were experimented on, starved, killed, all sorts of nasty things. And he wrote, and the really terrible thing about these camps was that these nasty things were done by doctors, medical professionals, dedicated to saving life. And he writes, The beginnings at first were merely a subtle shift in the emphasis of the basic attitude of the physicians. It started with the attitude, basic in the euthanasia movement, that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. This attitude in its early stages concerned itself merely with the severely and chronically sick. Gradually, the sphere of those to be included in this category was enlarged to encompass the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwanted, the racially unwanted, and finally all non-Germans. Now you might think that's a big step 
from you know, chronically ill people who might be suffering and therefore euthanasia is a good thing to anybody you don't like. And yet that step was made in a series of much smaller steps by physicians. These are not political people. These are not people in power, head of the army, um, you know, involved in fighting a war. These are doctors whose attitudes change from it might be nice to help the, the, the chronically ill to pass away more peacefully to anybody who's not like us, we should kill. There are dangerous precedents. Both abortion and euthanasia, euthanasia allow us to become judges of what is a valid life and what is not. And we shouldn't be those judges. Is everybody enjoying it so far? You'll look, at, you'll look a bit sombre. I know it's, a, it's, it, it's something we don't like to think about. We don't like to think about the consequences of some of the very common and ver commonplace and very acceptable ideas that uh, are going through our world. Who's ever heard of Peter Singer? He's a, an e he's a, he calls himself an ethicist. He works in ethics. He comes from Princeton University. And his, his statement is that once we get away with, uh, from all the religious tomfoolery about the sanctity of life, and that's what he calls it, he says we will come to the only conclusion possible and that is that some lives are not worth living and that we will not have a taboo about getting rid of unproductive members of our society. And so he's, he's not only suggesting abortions for babies who show uh, pre-birth uh, genetic defects, but also something they're now calling post-birth abortion which is actually infanticide. It's the killing of newborn babies. And this, this guy is a well-respected professor of ethics at Princeton University, and he is not the only one who thinks that way. Because there is a move in our world to allow us to become the judge, jury, and executioner of who should live and who shouldn't. And there will become terms like mentally unfit, physically unworthy of life, that will appear in the constitutions and laws of countries that will enable people to do away with those we don't think are worthy. Television's the worst offender in this. We regularly entertain ourselves with people who are artificially good-looking. Damn you, Photoshop. Anyway, dangerous and slippery ground to go on. And we need to be thinking about these things. Capital punishment. Generally speaking, it isn't a big issue here in Australia. You'd have to be well over 50 to have remembered the last hanging here in Australia. Pentridge Jail, uh, Ryan, I think his name was. Not Ross, he wrote a song. Um, Robert, was it? Robert Ryan. Um, and so we, we don't have to consider that a lot. But even amongst Christians, there are two schools of thought, and I think I mentioned these last week. Uh, there are some Christians who support capital punishment for murder and their argument is precisely the value of human life justifies the de death penalty. If somebody kills something else, you are devaluing the person's life that was murdered by not taking the life of the person who did it. The opposing argument, of course, is that capital punishment is barbaric, dehumanises society 
And the fact that our legal system isn't perfect means that you're bound to make mistakes. And we know that's happened, that people have been executed who have been innocent of the crimes they've accused of. A compromised position, uh, and that I think that's pretty much has been adopted by a lot of countries, is that the death sentence for murder is passed so that we show society's high view of life, but is always converted to life imprisonment to avoid the problems of enacting the actual capital punishment. Now, some people say, well, that's you know, too wishy-washy, but that tends to be what happens in most cases in, in our Western societies, at least. There are a lot of other societies in the world in which capital punishment is um, well accepted, and there are figures that never get fully released that show that a lot of people in this world are still killed by governments in the form of capital punishment. I think it's something that we should be aware of and something we should speak out against. The final thing, war. War movies are made, books are written, stories are told of past wars, some of them extolling the glory of war, others the horror. But they're all sort of, now that we're not having one, vaguely romantic. My grandfather was a prisoner of war in World War II in Java. That in itself must have been a hell of a shock because he came from Birmingham. The weather itself could well have killed him. The second thing was, because he was sent, he, he was on the ship that came to uh, re rescue Singapore. He arrived about a week too late. And so they all escaped to Java and were captured by the Japanese and he was put into a prison camp with a mob of Australians, one of whom ended up teaching me social studies in high school, which was quite amazing. Um, what was I, where was I going with that? War, that's right. So, um, and my grandfather died in 1964 because he never recovered from the, from the torture and the and the privation that prison camp sort of afforded. Um, and so I, I never met him, um, apart from when I was two and earlier, and I don't remember much of that. Um, in fact, to be truthful, I don't remember any of it. I've got a photo that shows that he held me, but that's about it. So there are a couple of issues with the way Christians view war that colour our acceptance or our rejection of war as a suitable way of settling arguments. Wars are generally conducted by countries which make it hard to make individuals accountable. And that's why a lot of people engage in war because you can always blame the government. Um, that you just en enlisted in the army, it wasn't your fault, you were following orders. Any of these ring any bells? People will excuse their own personal beliefs because they, and to some degree, you know, there's arguments about how right that is. I mean, whether, you know, defending your country, is that an acceptable form of war? If we were attacked, would it be non-patriotic of us to say, well, we're not going to fight? Or should we all take up arms to defend what is rightfully ours? Is it rightfully ours? And there's, there's all sorts of questions. The third, especially for Christians, this, the next one's a kicker. The Old Testament is full of it. So God can't be anti-war because, look, there's so much of it. In the, and you read the Old Testament, they're killing each other left, right and centre. 
there's a lot of it about. And I think it's very easy for us as modern, civilised and non-warlike human beings <coughs> to look back and say, what barbarians. But who here was a barbarian when they met God? I was. My thinking wasn't God. I wasn't particularly warlike. Um, but my attitudes were not godly. And guess what? God met me where I was. He didn't say, you clean up your act. And once you've cleaned up your act, you can be a son of God. He accepted me and then said, okay, let's work on a few things. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, these people are a product of societies where what we view as gross and horrible behavior was the norm. God met them where they were at. He encouraged them and grew them based on what they would understand. I don't think you'd survive if you went up, if suddenly we were all transported back to well, 1800 BC. I'm not sure of the exact time frame, but say in the middle of the, uh, the Sinai Desert, and there's, these, there's the Moabites and the Israelites, say, and they're, they're about to face off and give battle. And we appear in their middle with placards with that, the peace sign on it and start marching up and down chanting, Peace, not war. What would happen to us? We would be slaughtered. Because the message that we are projecting is so far out of their understanding, even if we could speak the language. I'm not sure how it would go in English. Probably they'd arrest us as foreigners and we'd get the chop just for not speaking the language. But the, the idea of peace was not what our idea of peace is. Their idea of peace is we can have peace as soon as we've wiped out the enemy. That's what peace was to them. It's not coming to an agreement with the enemy because the enemy isn't going to agree with us, so we might as well wipe them out. Now, God had to work with that. And it took him several centuries, but we've got, and it took his son to come and, ish, and ish, uh, usher in a new period of grace and love and forgiveness to actually bring that to pass. Because God has suffered mankind's attitudes and always met us where we are. So there's a lot of it in the Old Testament, but it's not an excuse to have war. The fourth thing's the killer, of course, though. History will tell us that religion is the main cause for wars on this planet. And as a Christian, how do you live with that? Well, you do some research. If you do some research, you can find a graph which lists all the wars in mankind's history and the percentage of them caused by religion. 7% of all wars throughout history have been caused by religion. 3% of those have been caused by all religions apart from one other religion whose name I cannot mention, even though it's there up on the screen. If we take away that particular, which also indicates fairly strongly that not all religion contributes to war to the same degree. There is a, a tendency by atheists or atheists that all religions contribute to war. But even if you look at stuff in the Old Testament, even if you look at what has happened, 3% of all wars have been caused by non-Islamic religious conflict. Anybody who tells you that religion causes most of the wars in the world is wrong. These are 
verifiable facts. Um, Wikipedia will back this up. Um, and possibly more. So, religion is not the main cause of conflict throughout the world. Most of the people who have died in recent history have died under dictatorship regimes by totally non-religious people. Tens of millions of people have died not in war <laughs> but in internal strife in countries. So we can take heart, I think, in that war is actually not part of our faith. War is not caused by our faith. And religion can't be blamed for most of the wars and violence in the world, even if we take all religions into account. So what causes war? What causes violence? Well, you do. Well, I can prove it. Look in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus provides the answer here very clearly. For from within, where from? Within. Out of a person's heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. <laughs> There's a lot coming out of there. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And James naturally agrees with Christ when he says in James chapter 4 verse 1 what is causing the quarrels and fights among you don't they come from the evil desires at war within you you want what you don't have so you scheme and kill to get it you are jealous of what others have but you can't get it so you fight and wage war to take it from them yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. We can break down most of what we've sa I've said this morning, whether it be abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, or war, that human beings are trying to circumvent God by making rules that enable us to kill other people. It's either because we want something, we're jealous of what somebody else has, we have desires which are not godly, and we make it legal for us to take it from people, even if it means taking their lives. That's pretty sad. What do we do about it? The command not to murder provides a vital role in giving a society limits. But it's not about the negative concept that you're forbidden from killing people. It's, it's not about coming to a place that says, well, we're allowed to do a lot of things, but I'm really disappointed, but I'm just not allowed to, not allowed to kill people. Life would be so much more fulfilling if, if, if I could just you know, kill a few people just to see what it was like. But it says I can't. So it, It's not a question of a, a rule that forbids us to do something. It's not a question of a limit that stifles our creativity. Well, I'd be, I'd be able to paint better if I could just kill a few people. 
you know, who, who, who watches Game of Thrones? There was a, an episode early on where, um, what's her name, Daenerys, marries uh, Drago, Drago, yeah, the, the, and they're sitting at the wedding and two guys get into a fight and one disembowels the other one and, and he, in the middle of the wedding ceremony, or not the ceremony, the feast afterwards, they didn't interrupt the ceremony, which was thankfully very short. Um, and one guy leans to the other guy and says, a Dothraki wedding is considered to be a boring affair unless at least three people get killed during the wedding, wedding feast. And I thought, you see, that, that's the sort of attitude that people have. Death of somebody else is inconsequential. You know, we had a great wedding. Six people were killed. <laughs> it was amazing. You sort of think there's something wrong going on there. Because we need, to, we need to flip that around. It's not about what we're not allowed to do. It's actually about what our value system should be that would make us not want to do that. It's all about God's value on you. Who, who thinks they're valuable to God? Now, who, who thinks they're really valuable? Come on. Because if you don't, I do. You're all really valuable to God. God thinks you are all incredibly special, more than I do. Because I have this thing, I think I'm incredibly special, but the rest of you are perhaps only second best. And the reason I can say this is because I know that you all think exactly the same thing. You all think you're pretty good, but the rest of us are all perhaps not quite up there. Depending on how close you are, sometimes you're right down there. But we all understand that God has created every single one of us as unique and special. And so the commandment not to murder is actually just a reinforcement of the fact that God considers life supremely important. That it, he created man and woman in his image not to be murdered but to be celebrated, to interact with one another. Notice that one of his first commandments when he created mankind was that it was really bad to be alone. Man and women were created together to exist in harmony together. That's God's ultimate great plan, that we live together in harmony. Who knows that it's very hard to live in harmony with people if they think you might kill them in, in, your, in their sleep. Creates a sort of, air, sort of distrust, wouldn't you think? You'd start putting up walls and, and doors and allowing people entry with secret passwords and making sure that gunslingers left their guns at the door when they went into the saloon and, and things like that. But if we didn't have that distrust, if we understood God's value on human life, we wouldn't need those things. And so the sixth commandment is actually in reverse. Respect the sanctity of human life. It's something we should do rather than say, well, do not kill because you'll upset the apple cart. How about respect human life because your life will be blessed. Your life will change. I think the goal for us as individuals is always clear. It gets muddy when you talk about groups, when you start to talk about religion, government, war. They're all about groups. It's easy to hate a group. But when you know individuals, it's much harder you know, you, you might not like a particular 
social group or racial group. You might read in the news that people in Cronulla rioted and, and ruined the streets and you sort of think, oh, those Lebanese people. But if you know somebody who's Lebanese, who's a good friend of yours, you, you don't think that. You don't go up to him the next day and say, your people create trouble because they create, I hate you. You, do, you, don't, you know he's a mate, he's a friend. You, you don't blame his, his countrymen's or his country or his government's woes on him. Look at those people creating war over there. It's all your fault, naughty person. You, we, once we get to know people as individuals, it's all right. Actually, I don't think Mike's Lebanese, but I <laughs> don't know why he's so upset. Um, but as individuals, our task is clear. We're called to pr- pursue love, peace and righteousness across all barriers of race, language and culture. That, not warfare or murder, is what brings God's kingdom into people's lives. It's the value of human life. I want us us to value human life right now. I think it's important that all human life is important, but young human life is even more important. I want us to, can we all stand? Uh, Yeah, can I get rid of that? Can I ask, I just want to pray for anybody here who's pregnant, and also parents who have children under the age of 10. And I, want, I want you to come out here on the altar and I, I want to pray for you right now. And I, I, want, I want help from people who are married but don't have children. Can I have a couple of couples? Yeah, you and yep, yeah, you, you. Oh, and husbands as well, not just the mothers. Come on, Simon. Just... Okay, you guys just stand there. I'm going I'm to get you guys to pray. And perhaps if you know somebody who's got a young family or is pregnant, you can come out. We can pray for you on their behalf if you want to do that as well. But I just want us, as we pray for these people this morning, it's not about marriage. It's not about ideology. It's not about parenting skills. It's actually about the fact that as parents, and I think a lot of us here are parents, even if we're parents of older children, have a responsibility and a care to make sure that the next generation takes on the best of what we have. And we need to be those people with love, peace and righteousness in our hearts. So I just want us to pray for the strength of God to be in your lives, the peace of God to rule in your lives. And I just want these guys just to lay hands on them and just pray as, as couples or individuals uh, for that peace to fall. And I want, if you're standing in the uh, congregation, just put your hands out. Start to pray under your breath for these people. Start to believe for a great future for them and their children. Start to encourage your relationship who knows that parents don't make a family it's parents grandparents cousins uncles aunts friends who gather around 
we can be those people. You don't have to be related by blood to be an auntie or an uncle. You just have to be a friend who cares. Come on, guys, let's pray for these kids. finish and I know we're running a bit late and people are sort of hankering for a coffee and a, and a, and a cake and a bun and a broken bread steaming up. I love word pictures. 
Uh, I just want to uh, 